0: If you would, let us pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would come and you would teach us the gospel. I pray that as we look at this text from Revelation, that you would make it abundantly clear, that you would uh, just show us uh, the, the urgency of the gospel, that you would show us the comfort of the gospel. I pray that for those who don't know it, you would show them the joy of the gospel. I pray that you would open blind eyes and deaf ears. Father, I pray for myself that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart, and in my understanding, and in my mouth. And in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. And amen. You know, Mark Twain said, I'm pretty sure it was Mark Twain who said that he says it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do. So my hope is is that we've been looking at Revelation. We're almost halfway through. I think this is number twenty of the book of Revelation. My hope is is that the book of Revelation is bothering you more and more as we get into it. Because really, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, on one hand, it seems complicated. I mean, it is complicated. In fact, this week, when we sat down to do our... Uh, I meet with the, Jamie and Sharon, and we talk about the growth group homework. And I sat down, and I said, you know, I think this might be the hardest one yet. This is just crazy. And Jamie looked up, and he said... You know you say that almost every week. And I say, I, I think it's true this time, though. No. This time, really, it's true. But as I got into it, I think it's not nearly uh, as complicated as we would think it is. It's going to be a little different this morning because there's lots of signs, lots of symbols, lots of things like that. So I'm going to actually just jump right in. I'm gonna, Well, let me remind you of the purpose. The purpose at the end of the day was to teach the churches in uh, Asia Minor that Jesus is winning. In other words to teach him on one hand that he has won in the past by his death and resurrection and he will win in the future that he's coming back to restore all things but that he's winning right now and so you look at your life and you say look at all the hard things that are happening somehow in the, in and through all the things that are happening jesus is winning but not only that the church is called to mission one thing you see over and over in the book of revelation is this this admonition to be outwardly faced the Book of Revelation is sort of this this great picture of the fact that the end is coming, and for those who trust Jesus, it will be glorious, and those who do not trust Jesus, it will be inglorious. It will, in fact, be horrible. And as a church, as a church, particular with us, but also as all churches, it is at a constant exhortation to p- turn our faces outward. So I thought this morning, as we jump, as we look at that, I'd remind you of the seven churches. Remember, the Book of Revelation was at, right at the beginning. It said it was three things. It was an apocalypse, and an apocalypse simply means to reveal. It's like the pulling of a curtain back. And so what does it reveal? It reveals the person and work of Jesus. But it also said that it was a prophecy. And what does prophecy do? Prophecy is always, whether it's even if it's predicting the future, prophecy is, is shooting for some kind of moral change. In other words, it wants the hearers to have faith, or it wants them to repent. It's looking for some kind of action. And so you read the book of Revelation, it's not just a book to be figured out. You know, it's not like the, 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 the Monday New York Times crossword puzzle and you try and figure it out and, you know, some things you get and some things you don't. Whatever's given to us in the book of Revelation is given to move us to some kind of action. And in particular, it was written to seven churches. It was a letter to seven churches in Asia. And remember, John opens, he says, to the seven churches which are in Asia. And at the very end of the book of Revelation, he says, grace be to you all. So it's an apocalypse and it's a prophecy, but overall, it's a letter. And it's a letter written to seven churches. Seven is the perfect number, and these churches probably represent every church. And in fact, the problems that we see in the churches are tr- problems that I've seen in every church I've been at. Remember of the seven, there were basically five problem children, if you will. You had Ephesus. These are, the, these are not the order which they're given, by the way. You had Ephesus. Remember the problem at Ephesus is that John says you've lost your first love. That It was a big church, it had great programs, it, it was a famous church, maybe even Jesus' mother Mary was a member there, John the Apostle was the pastor there for a while, and yet they were no longer outwardly faced. And so what we learned there was you can have all the programs in the world, you can have great music, you can have a great sanctuary, you can have all these things, but if you are not outwardly faced, you lose. Jesus says to this church, I will take your lampstand out. We saw Pergamum and Thyatira, that they were compromisers. On one hand, they were doing church well when they were here on Sunday morning, but when they went out in the world, you could, couldn't tell any difference between them and those who didn't believe. Then we saw that Sardis, the church at Sardis was extremely wealthy, it was extremely famous, but it was also dead. You know, as I, tra- I travel quite a bit, more than I wish I had to, but as you travel around the country, there are lots of churches that have lots of money and are also completely dead. That what it's all about is as a program or feeling good, but no one really comes to know Jesus. And then at Laodicea, right, that's maybe the most famous one. Jesus says, I want you either hot or cold, but if you're neither one, I'll, if you're lukewarm, I'll spit you out of my mouth. And so five of the churches in the book of Revelation basically were, were failures, and Jesus was telling them, if you don't get with the program, I'm going to remove you from existence. On the other hand, so you don't lose hope, two of the churches, Smyrna, and philadelphia were faithful they weren't knocking it out of the park by any means but they were at least faithful they were trying to live out the gospel they were trying to bear witness to the gospel in the context of their communities you'll notice at the bottom of this slide it says ggf i'm going to try and start doing that that's that's going to stand for growth group focus in the book of revelation there's so many things that i can't talk about in our growth groups one of the things we'll do is we'll cover those things more in depth. So if you're in a growth group, this is one of the things you'll be talking about this week is the church in Philadelphia again. But also, if you don't have that homework, it's either out on the Welcome Center or you can get it on our website. Just click the small group link and it's all there. So, but you're going to be talking about that this week in your growth groups. As we continue on, there's another thing I need to remind you of. is when you read the book of Revelation, you have to ask yourself, when John gives us all these numbers and all these different pictures, is he giving us symbols or is he giving us statistics? Is John's intention to give us symbols or is his intention to give us statistics? You see, if you you follow the news, which many of you know I do, remember a few weeks ago when there was a minor Supreme Court decision about health care? And, and many people came out on the news and they said, well, it depends on your perspective, of course. Supreme Court John Roberts, he came, when he came on the court, he said, I'm just going to call him as I see him. I'm just an umpire. I just call balls and strikes. Do you remember that? When there's a sense in which, that's all that John the Apostle is doing in the book of Revelation as well. He just calls him as I see him. I just call balls and strikes. Whatever I see, that's what I give you. Now the issue is, Whether you're John Roberts or whether you're the Apostle John, even though you're calling balls and strikes, you're still interpreting things in the process. What if it's exactly over the corner? It's halfway across the plate and halfway on the outside. You've got to decide what it is. It all depends on the filter you use, and it all depends on what motivates you. Well, we learned over and over again in the book of Revelation that John's filter is the Old Testament. In other words, when John sees things, the first thing that comes to his mind is all these images from the Old Testament. And so, in fact, this morning, in this one passage that we're going to look at, you're going to see Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elijah, and Moses. All of them are going to be here. Which is interesting because this is one of the passages that people sort of derive some of the more uh, creative interpretations about. And yet, if you know the story, if you know Zechariah, if you know Ezekiel, if you know Daniel, if you know Elijah, and you know Moses, you read this passage and it makes all the sense in the world. Right? Wrong? You see, what I'm coming to find out myself, I've told Jamie a number of times, I said, I think after I preach through the book of Revelation, I don't know if I'll ever have to study for another sermon again. Because in order to study for one sermon on one half of one chapter in the book of Revelation, you've got to learn Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Elijah, and Moses. All of those. In some sense, when you look at the book of Revelation, it's like an immersion course in language. But it's an immersion course not in language. It's an immersion course in the Old Testament. I think I told you I went to a preaching conference a while back. And they went around and said, what are you preaching? And I said, oh, Revelation. And they laughed. And they said, yeah, how's that working for you? And I said, it's pretty easy. It's just like preaching the Old Testament. Crickets. But that's true. We'll see it this morning. Let's jump right into the text. Looking at verse 1, John says, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure. I'll read verse 2. The court outside the temple, and leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for forty-two months. Okay, remember also that we're in the middle. We're in what, what the book of Revelation I'm calling an interlude. That what you have is that you have all these sort of horrendous images. You had seven seals, you have seven trumpets, you have seven bowls of God's wrath, and right before the sixth and the seventh, each time, what you have is an interlude. It's almost as if the the images get so so overwhelming that God stops and he lets John take a breather, or he lets us take a breather. And you remember all the seals and all the trumpets and all the bowls of wrath? Those are talking about people who do not trust in Jesus. And the interludes, what we're looking at today and what we looked at last week, are actually instruction for the church or encouragement for the churches and so the first thing you see in chapter 11 he says then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and so the question is what temple what temple because in 70 AD the temple was destroyed there was no temple to be measured and, and by the time you get to the end of the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 22 there is no temple either so when God says measure the temple what is he getting at here First thing we got to realize is that John is not measuring a literal temple. Remember, keep asking yourself, is it symbols or is it statistics? What is the temple that is to be measured? And the answer, in short, is that the temple is God's people. It's the church. Most of your growth group homework this week, by the way, will be about that. Will be about the, the temple, God's people as the temple. Let me read you just one verse. From 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, Paul says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And so as you look at the theology of the temple through the whole Bible, part of the theology of the temple was that's the place where God meets with man. That's the place where God dwells. But it's also the place that would draw the nations in. We see in John chapter 2 that Jesus says of himself that he is the temple. We see that after Jesus has risen from the dead and sends his spirit to inhabit the church, that the church is now the temple. And John comes and says, God says, measure this temple. Rise and measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there. How do you measure the people? You can't. So then you have to ask the question, if the temple is God's people, why, what's the whole purpose of measuring them? That just seems bizarre, does it not? And hopefully it will make sense if you consider the next slide in verse one. Why measure it? It has all to do with Zechariah chapter two, verses one through five. Let me read that to you. John says, or Zechariah says, "And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold a man with a measuring line in his hand. Then I said, "Where are you going?" And he said to me, "To measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and its length." And behold, the the angel talked with me, came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run and say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. And I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. That's it. Did you catch that? What is the purpose of measuring in Zechariah? What's the purpose? By the way, in Ezekiel, the same thing happens. That measuring in the Old Testament, in these passages, has everything to do with God's protection. It's sort of like you measure out something and say you can go no further than this. It's not just measuring it to get statistics. I mean, who measures things just for the fun of it? because they knew how big it was. When he says measure it, it's almost as if he's saying mark it out. Mark out the the delineation between what's inside and what's outside. Everything inside, that's what I will protect. So when he says measure the temple, if the temple is the people of God, what he's saying is at least two things. One is that I will be a protection to her and that I will dwell in her. And that is completely consistent with everything we've learned about the book of Revelation because what is it telling us to do? over and over again it says be outwardly faced be outwardly faced, bear witness to the world even though it kill you and what you find is that God says I will protect those who are mine remember when we started looking at the the trumpets and the demonic hairy locusts that came upon mankind to attack them remember who they were told to attack? those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead You see chapter 11 here, right up front, God is reminding the churches, our church, that you have a mission, but I dwell in you to empower you. You have a mission, but I protect you. You are hemmed all about, as it were, with fire. And you thought firewalls were something the internet invented, didn't you? All the way back in Zechariah. As we continue, what about those outside He says, do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Now why would he say measure the inside but not the outside? Isn't the whole thing important? And the answer is pretty simple. Again, it's consistent with the whole book of Revelation. What we've learned over and over again is in the book of Revelation you find that at the end of the day there are only two kinds of people. There are those who have the seal of God on their forehead and those who do not have the seal of God on their forehead. Those who are under God's protection because they have trusted in the Lamb and those who have not trusted in the Lamb. And what he's saying is those on the inside of God's people, the church, they are protected. Measure them out. If you are on the outside of God's people, you are not protected. In other words, to be outside of the church, to be outside of the gospel, is to be outside of God's protection. You're on your own is basically what he's saying. Remember what we looked at last week, that up to this point in the book of Revelation, when you hear every tribe, tongue, and nation, that's a good thing. From here on out in the book of Revelation, oftentimes when you hear every tribe, tongue, and nation, not every time, but often, it's not a good thing. Because even if you're from every tongue, tribe, or nation, you want to be in God's covenant family, not outside of it. And that's basically what he's getting at here. If you continue on, the next thing is 42 months. What does he mean when he says... Uh, It will be given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. I can only imagine what some television shows and some television preachers say about this. But again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, 42 months makes all the sense in the world. First of all, 42 months is three and a half years, and three and a half years is half of the perfect number, seven. That's all the numerology you're going to get from me. First of all, the number 42 is the number of stages that Israel took to get from Egypt to Canaan. Remember the gospel, as it were, to Israel was, I promise I will get you from Egypt into the promised land. And in Numbers chapter 33, what it says is that actually took 42 different potty breaks, if you will, or rest stops. They went 42 different stops before they got from Egypt to the promised land. So what it takes... To get from Egypt to the promised land is forty two months, if you will. Forty two stops. The other time we see forty two is it's also the time of without rain in the days of Elijah. First Kings chapter seventeen when he prophesies there'll be no rain. There was no rain as he preached to the nations to be repent to repent. So for the, t- the time that it took, for, for there to be no rain, for the nations to repent, it was 42 months. Is there any, are there any more significant 42s? Yeah, the number of generations from Abraham to Jesus was 42 generations. And then finally, there's more, but these are the ones I'm giving you now. It's the time in chapter 12 in the book of Revelation that the dragon pursues a woman and her children and through the wilderness into to the end. We're going to see, talk a little bit about the dragon today, the beast. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be consistent with the rest of the book of Revelation, what 42 months ultimately symbolizes and equals is the whole time God's people, the church, are in the world between the first and second comings of Jesus. It's as simple as that. In other words, just as it took 42 stops for God to finish the job with Israel, So with the church, it takes 42 months. It's symbolic. It's either statistics or it's symbols. And if it's symbolic, it must mean something like it means in the Old Testament. And what it means in the Old Testament is the time it takes for God to finish the job. Right? Right. And with Abraham and Jesus, the time God gave the promise to the time he fulfilled the promise. And so ultimately, what this 42 months means is that God will protect the church Every minute from the time of Jesus' first coming until the time of Jesus' second coming. And that leads us to what these two witnesses are. In verse 3, look at, he says, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. I'm going to talk more about the two witnesses in a minute, but just let me emphasize, I think what's important here is the fact that they're clothed in sackcloth. And what does that mean? It means that they basically... These two witnesses, or the spirit of these two witnesses, will both preach repentance and they will live repentant. In other words, sometimes when you preached repentance, you wore sackcloth. Other times when you were being repentant, you wore sackcloth. It's It's not clear here. Now, what does it mean to be repentant? If you're not familiar with that term or you're not familiar with church, repentance basically means to stop doing what you're doing and turn around and start following God. You're following one thing, maybe it's some, some, you're, you're chasing after money, you're chasing after women, you're chasing after any number of things. To repent means to stop doing that and to turn and chase God Himself. In reality, it's a recognition that He's chasing you and you're sort of giving up. But those who are witnessing to the world both preach repentance that they need to turn from the things of this world unto Jesus, but also they live that way. Part of the problem with the church's witness Right? There's, more, there's more quotes than I care to, to mention, but at the end of the day, they can all be summarized. If the church would live more the way she preaches, more people would probably trust in Jesus. I think there's some truth to that. And so the, these witnesses both preach repentance, but they also live repentance. And the question is, why only two of them? Verse 4 it says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And what's going on here? In verse 4, basically, there are two ways that people have, been, have looked at this. When he says there are only two witnesses, that two, there are two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This, by the way, comes from Zechariah chapter 4. Remember I told you Zechariah would be important in this book. Zechariah chapter 4, we hear about seven lampstands and two olive trees that are beside them. And and that's the passage where it says, not by my power, but my strength, says the Lord. Not by your power, but my, my power, my strength, says the Lord God. Now the question is, is John is using this image from Zechariah, but instead of using seven lampstands, he's using two. And if you remember from the beginning of the book of Revelation, that lampstands equal what? Churches. And so now we have the churches are intertwined with whoever these two witnesses are. So there are two olive trees and there are two lampstands and mo- many commentators think the reason that there are two lampstands mentioned here is because remember at the beginning only two of the churches were faithful that's what some people think i don't think that's necessarily the case because there's another issue here is that if you look at the old testament you only you need two witnesses to convict somebody of something in other words if you look at the book of deuteronomy numbers all this And all throughout God's law, it says only on the testimony of two individuals can someone be convicted of something or someone be accused of something. And so the reason there are two witnesses here is because the church is bearing witness to the world. And the witness we're going to see in a minute is the spirit of Moses, the spirit of Elijah. And on the testimony of these two witnesses, the world is guilty. And the world is guilty. They either turn and trust Jesus or they don't, but they're they're guilty on the basis of the testimony of these two witnesses and it's time to point out over and over again in the book of revelation you hear the word witness 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 too often in the church we see ourselves not as witnesses but we see ourselves as defendants in other words what does a witness do a witness bears testimony to the truth the person who's always on trial in the eyes of the world is not the church it's jesus himself What are you going to do with Jesus? And the church's job is to bear witness. Here's what Jesus did for me. I once was blind, but now I see. That I saw. Before I trusted Jesus, everything was unclear. Now it's clear. The church bears witness, but most often in church, instead of seeing ourselves as witnesses to the truth, we see ourselves as defendants. That we're the ones. We sit in the dock and we have to always be trying to make apology for the gospel of Jesus. We don't do that at all which we shouldn't have to our first and primary job is to simply bear witness here's who jesus is here's what he has done and now we get to elijah and moses look at um verses five and six says that and anyone who would harm them fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes if anyone would harm them this is how he is doomed to be killed they have the power to shut up the sky that the rain may fall during the day no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire well if you haven't caught on yet the, the two witnesses i believe here is really at the end of the day it's the church's witness and it's the witnesses that the church brings And the witness that the church brings, in many ways, is like the witness of Moses and it's like the witness of Elijah. And what we learn here is just as God has been faithful to Moses and Elijah, what God did through Moses and Elijah, he will do through the witness of the church. Remember the stories of Moses and Elijah? I mean, there's lots of them. But remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? That he called down fire from heaven. You know John liked Elijah because remember the time when some people were were giving Jesus trouble and John said, let's call down fire on him. Remember that? But also Moses. At Moses, who's the one who brought plagues, God used Moses to bring plagues upon Pharaoh. And both in Elijah's case and in Moses' case, they were vindicated. And not only were they vindicated, but God gave them victory. And the witness of the church ultimately will be victorious. Remember, the purpose of these interludes is to encourage the church in the midst of everything around that looks like they're going crazy. And what you learn in chapter 11 is that the church is protected, the church is dwelt in by God, but also the church's witness will ultimately be effective. And the question is, do you believe that? And I would answer that question on behalf of many people here, saying absolutely not. Most people in most churches really don't believe that the witness that they bring will be victorious because if that was true, they would actually do it. And most of us, we either spend zero time building relationships with our friends and neighbors, no time inviting people, not just to church, but when's the last time we invited anyone to dinner? When's the last time we invited anyone to coffee? When's the last time you talked to your neighbors? I was talking to someone this week, and and part of it is because I didn't grow up in the church and I I didn't have Sunday schools, I didn't have anything but I was asking someone this week I just never got it maybe because I didn't grow up in the church how on one hand we can be so uptight about all of the commands in the Bible except one I mean I've gotten more letters about the way I dress I've gotten zero letters about the way we reach people people have left the church over the way we play music I don't know anyone who's left the church because we haven't seen enough people come to know Jesus. You see, the command we seem to be very comfortable with disobeying is, among others, the great commission to go and make disciples. And yet God over and over and over and over and over again says you will be victorious. And Not victorious in the, in the sense that you're going to be wealthy and that you're going to always be happy, but you're going to be victorious in the mission I gave you. And that mission is to bear witness to the world and whether it's through your words or even through your death, I will be glorified, just like I was with Elijah, just like I was with Moses. Continuing on in verses 7 and 8, he says, and that, and that when they have finished their testimony, that's the, the church, the, these witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, I'll just let that sink in for a minute, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So there are basically three big images here. One is this whole idea of the beast, the other is Sodom, and the other is Egypt. Now what is he getting at here? We're going to talk more about the beast in a couple of weeks. I mean, the beast comes, really comes to the fore in chapter 12. But at the end of the day, what we learn is that the enemy of God's people ultimately is not the, the world outside. The enemy of God's people is this one called the beast. It's Satan. That there is one who seeks to devour you. There's one who seeks to destroy you. It's not your Democratic neighbor if you're a Republican. It's not your Republican neighbor if you're a Democrat. It's not the person who disagrees with you. The person who ultimately seeks to destroy you is Satan himself. And what we see here is the beast rises up and he will have some manner of victory. At least it will seem like a victory to him. You see, once you get into this portion, what you see is that the church ultimately, which again we've seen over and over again, the church is called to relive before the world the life of Jesus. And in the life of Jesus, what happened at the cross? As Jesus went to the cross, and at that point, Satan believed, I guess, that he had defeated the Son of God, that Jesus is dead, and that I have won. Remember in in the Chronicles of Narnia when they had Aslan on the stone table, and all of the evil creatures danced around because he had been killed. They didn't know that there was more coming, did they? You see, what's going on with Sodom, what's going on with Egypt, Sodom throughout the whole Bible is basically synonymous with immorality and corruption, and Egypt is synonymous with oppression and bondage. And so he's basically saying that these cities, verse 8, he says that their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that, is, that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where the Lord was crucified. And that word symbolically is in the Greek means spiritually speaking, so John is actually cluing us in right there that this is symbolic, when John says symbolically, he usually means symbolic. So if you didn't think anything else here was symbolic, this is of something. Most commentators think that when he says that this symbolically the place where the saints are killed is symbolically Sodom and Egypt, is basically every city that sets itself against the work of God. It's every city that would seek to be self-sufficient. It's every place that would seek to be immoral and oppressive. And it's every place like that, that that might that is just like the place where Jesus was crucified. It's more what is the atmosphere in those places rather than what is literally happening. Verses nine and twelve. Nine through twelve, let me read that to you quickly. He says, For three and a half days some of the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and a great fear fell on those who saw them. And then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So what's happening there? Well, for one, there's a lot of indignity going on. But it also should remind us of what happened at the cross of Jesus. That people rejoiced, people laughed, people, people, people scorned him. The same will happen to the church to the extent that it's faithful and it's witness. But what's more important here is the imagery you get, which is straight from Ezekiel chapter 37. Remember in Ezekiel 37, the prophet has shown a valley full of dry bones? And the angel comes and says, Son of man, can these bones live? And he he gives the right answer. He says, you know. And the breath of God came and breathed life into the dry bones and they rose up to be a mighty army. And so what is he getting at here? It's the same image from Ezekiel that all of these saints have been killed and they're laying in the streets and the world is rejoicing because they think they have won and God breathes life into them. Imagine the scene. With is piles of dead bodies of Christians and then the world rejoicing and dancing and having a party and all of a sudden they see some twitching. And the church rises up and God says, come up here. Now some people, someone wrote, I don't know, I forget who it was, wrote a note last week. They said, I want to know more about scripture references for pre-tribulation rapture. And I didn't know what to say because I don't think there are any. Because what's happening here, remember all of these signs, all of these seals, take us from from the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time of the very end. And this is a type of rapture, I guess, where people are caught up. The saints are being said, come up to me. But it's not before some kind of tribulation. In fact, it's after. It's after they've been killed. It's after they've been mocked. It's after they've been crushed. In fact, it's after all things we're going to see. By the time we get to Revelation chapter 20 and 21. That at the end of all time, the saints will be resurrected from the dead. And at the end of the day, what we learn is that the church of Jesus cannot be destroyed. It can't be destroyed. And if the church of Jesus cannot be destroyed, why is the church of Jesus one of the most risk-averse organizations that I've ever seen in my life? I mean, rangers thought they couldn't be destroyed, and they, they did everything. But they could be. The church can't be G.K. Chesterton, I love one of my favorite lines from G.K. Chesterton. As he says, five times in church history, the church has gone to the dogs. And each time, it is the dogs that have died. I mean, people oftentimes look at the church and you, you hear doom and gloom and this and that and Barner reports and all of it. At the end of the day, means nothing because the promise of God is that at the end of the day, the church will not be destroyed. It cannot be destroyed. In fact, not only cannot, can it be destroyed, but its witness will be effective, and I think that's what you see in the last verse here. Verse thirteen says, And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. So what is he getting at here when he says that? That that a tenth of the city fell. And 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. Well, first of all, which city is it? We're not told what city is because it's a symbolic city. And in this city, only a tenth of the people fall. And in this city, only 7,000 fall. And those numbers are very significant because you see in Amos, and you also see in Isaiah where God says, I will come upon a city or I will come upon cities, and of the cities that I come upon in judgment, only a tenth will survive. Remember in the days of Elijah, he was upset because God said only 7,000 in Judah would survive, that only a remnant would survive. And so what's going on here? What's the witness of the church? This is the only place in the book of Revelation, the only place where it seems that people who do not believe are actually converted and believe. And here's the beauty of it. Remember I told you a few weeks ago that when you're reading the book of Revelation, that whenever you see fractions, it equals mercy. In other words, he didn't say, And as a result of your witness, a hundred percent of the city will fall. He said a tenth of the city will fall. As a result of your witness, he didn't say a hundred, you know, every inhabitant. He said only 7,000 will fall. Now here's the gospel math that you see that's happening in the New Testament that reverses what happened in the Old Testament. What happened in the Old Testament? If you caught what I was saying, in the Old Testament, he said, I will come upon a city and only a tenth of the city will survive. And here he's saying only a tenth will perish. Elijah said if only 7,000 could, could, be, could be saved. And here it says only 7,000 will be lost. You see, Presbyterians get an awful huff sometimes and wonder, you know, is, are, are people predestined or people not predestined? There's going to be a lot of people, there's going to be a, a few people. And at the end of the day, I think what's happening here is, is God is saying through John that church, if you would just witness, there will be many more people who stand than fall. It won't be just a minor remnant who is left, but it will be most people who will be around the throne of God. But it all depends on your witness. Now, in God's providence, He uses means. And the means is our witness. And the question is, will we bear that out? Do you really believe that? Do you believe that someday we could look around all of Kent and see most of the people in Kent actually are followers of Jesus, whether they are Baptist or whether they're Presbyterian or Lutheran or whatever, but they all, they, most of them follow Jesus? Nine-tenths. You know the only way that will happen? Is if we tell them. The only way that will happen is if we live that for them. The only way that happens is if we bring them in. The only way that happens is if we actually partner with churches that we usually don't partner with. Let me read to you the last verse and we'll be finished. Verse 14 says simply, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Think about that. Let me pray. Father, I pray this morning that you would... um, you would encourage us, so you wouldn't make us feel guilty, that, that we wouldn't be uh, just convicted, but that we would have, if anything, sorrow that leads to repentance, that you would make us a church that wants to go out and share the, the witness of Jesus with everybody because we have experienced it ourselves. And Father, if there are those who are here who have not experienced the, the grace of Jesus, I pray even now you would open their eyes to it. In Christ's name we pray all these things. Amen. Amen.